Section 5 of And Even Now by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 5. Number 2. The Pines. 1914. Author's Note. Early in the year 1914, Mr. Edmund Goss told me he was asking certain of his friends to write for him a few words apiece in description of Swinburne as they had known or seen him at one time or another, and he was so good as to wish to include in this gathering a few words by myself. I found it hard to be brief without seeming irreverent. I failed in the attempt to make of my subject a snapshot that was not a grotesque. So I took refuge in an ampler scope. I wrote a reminiscential essay. From that essay I made an extract, which I gave to Mr. Goss. From that extract he made a quotation in his enchanting biography. The words quoted by him reappear here in the midst of the whole essay as I wrote it. I dare not hope they are unashamed of their humble surroundings. M. B. End of Author's Note in my youth the suburbs were rather looked down on i never quite knew why it was held anomalous and a matter for merriment that swinburne lived in one of them for my part had i known as a fact that catullus was still alive i should have been as ready to imagine him living in putney as elsewhere the marvel would have been merely that he lived and swinburne's survival struck as surely as could his have struck in me the chord of wonder not of course that he had achieved a feat of longevity he was far from the psalmist's limit nor was he one of those men whom one associates with the era in which they happen to be young indeed if there was one man belonging less than any other to mid-victorian days swinburne was that man but by the calendar it was in those days that he had blazed blazed forth with so unexampled a suddenness of splendour and in the light of that conflagration all that he had since done much and magnificent though this was paled the essential swinburne was still the earliest he was and would always be the flammiferous boy of the dim past a legendary creature soul kin to the phoenix it had been impossible that he should ever surpass himself in the artistry that was from the outset his impossible that he should bring forth rhythms lovelier and greater than those early rhythms or exercise over them a mastery more than absolute also it had been impossible that the first wild ardour of spirit should abide unsinkingly in him youth goes and there was not in swinburne that basis on which a man may in his maturity so build as to make good in some degree the loss of what is gone he was not a thinker his mind rose ever away from reason to rhapsody neither was he human 
He was a king, crowned but not throned. He was a singing bird that could build no nest. He was a youth who could not afford to age. Had he died young, literature would have lost many glories, but none so great as the glories he had already given, nor any such as we should fondly imagine ourselves bereft of by his early death. A great part of Keats's fame rested on our assumption of what he would have done. But even granting that Keats may have had in him more than had Swinburne of stuff for development, I believe that had he lived on, we should think of him as author of the poems that in fact we know. Not philosophy, after all, not humanity, just sheer joyous power of song is the primal thing in poetry. Ideas and flesh and blood are but reserves to be brought up when the poet's youth is going. When the bird can no longer sing in flight, let the nest be ready. After the king has dazzled us with his crown, let him have something to sit down on. But the session on throne or in nest is not the divine period. Had Swinburne's genius been of the kind that solidifies, he would yet, at the close of the nineteenth century, have been for us young men, virtually, though not so definitely as in fact he was, the writer of Atalanta in Caledon, and of poems and ballads. Tennyson's death in ninety-eight had not taken us at all by surprise. We had been fully aware that he was alive. He had always been careful to keep himself abreast of the times. Anything that came along, the nebular hypothesis at one moment, the Imperial Institute at another, one mention from his muse. He had husbanded for his old age that which he had long ago inherited, middle age. If in our mourning for him there really was any tincture of surprise, this was due to merely the vague sense that he had, in the fullness of time, died rather prematurely. His middle age might have been expected to go on flourishing forever. But assuredly Tennyson dead laid no such strain on our fancy as Swinburne living. It is true that Swinburne did, from time to time, take public notice of current affairs, but what notice he took did but seem to mark his remoteness from them, from us. The Boers, I remember, were the theme of a sonnet which embarrassed even their angriest enemies in our midst. He likened them, if I remember rightly, to hellhounds foaming at the jaws. This was, by some people, taken as a sign that he had fallen away from that high generosity of spirit which had once been his. To me it meant merely that he thought of poor little England writhing under the heel of an alien despotism, just as, in the days when he really was interested in such matters, poor little Italy had risen. I suspect, too, that the first impulse to write about the Boers came not from the muse within, but from Theodore Watts Dunton without. Now, Algernon, we're at war, you know, at war with the Boers. I don't want to bother you at all, but I do think, my dear old friend, 
you oughtn't to let slip this opportunity of etc etc some such hortation is easily imaginable by any one who saw the two old friends together the first time i had this honour this site for lasting and affectionate memory must have been in the spring of ninety nine in those days theodore watts he had but recently taken on the dunton was still something of a gadabout i had met him here and there he had said in his stentorian tones pleasant things to me about my writing i sent him a new little book of mine and in acknowledging this he asked me to come down to putney and have luncheon and meet swinburne meet catullus on the day appointed i came as one whose feet half linger it is but a few steps from the railway station in putney high street to number two the pines i had expected a greater distance to the sanctuary a walk in which to compose my mind and prepare myself for initiation i laid my hand irresolutely against the gate of the bleak trim front garden i withdrew my hand i went away out here were all the aspects of common modern life in there was swinburne a butcher boy went by whistling he was not going to see swinburne he could afford to whistle i pursued my dilatory course up the slope of putney but at length it occurred to me that unpunctuality would after all be an imperfect expression of reverence and i retraced my footsteps number two prosaic inscription but as that front door closed behind me i had the instant sense of having slipped away from the harsh light of the ordinary and contemporary into the dimness of an odd august past here in this dark hall the past was present here loomed vivid and vital on the walls those women of rossetti whom i had known but as shades familiar to me in small reproductions by photogravure here they themselves were life-sized with curled-up lips and amorous hair done in the original warm crayon all of them intently looking down on me while i took off my overcoat all wondering who was this intruder from posterity that they hung in the hall evidently no more than an overflow was an earnest of packed plenitude within the room i was ushered into was a back room a dining room looking on to a good garden it was in form and fixtures an inalienably mid-victorian room and held its stolid own in the riot of rossetti's its proportions its window-sash bisecting the view of garden its folding doors through which i heard the voice of watts dunton booming mysteriously in the front room its mantelpiece its gas brackets all proclaimed that nothing ever would seduce them from their allegiance to martin tupper nor me from mine said the sturdy cruet stand on the long expanse of tablecloth the voice of watts dunton ceased suddenly and a few moments later its owner appeared he had been dictating he explained 
a great deal of work on hand just now a great deal of work i remember that on my subsequent visits he was always at the moment of my arrival dictating and always greeted me with that phrase a great deal of work on hand just now i used to wonder what work it was for he published little enough but i never ventured to inquire and indeed rather cherished the mystery it was a part of the dear little old man it went with the something gnome-like about his swarthiness and chubbiness went with the shaggy hair that fell over the collar of his eternally crumpled frock-coat the shaggy eyebrows that hung over his bright little brown eyes the shaggy moustache that hid his small round chin it was a mystery inherent in the richly laden atmosphere of the pines while i stood talking to watts dunton talking as loudly as he for he was very deaf i enjoyed the thrill of suspense in watching the door through which would appear swinburne i asked after mr swinburne's health watts dunton said it was very good he always goes out for his long walk in the morning wonderfully active active in mind too but i'm afraid you won't be able to get into touch with him he's almost stone deaf poor fellow almost stone deaf now he changed the subject and i felt i must be careful not to seem interested in swinburne exclusively i spoke of aylwin the parlour-maid brought in the hot dishes the great moment was at hand nor was i disappointed swinburne's entry was for me a great moment here suddenly visible in the flesh was the legendary being and divine singer here he was shutting the door behind him as might anybody else and advancing a strange small figure in grey having an air at once noble and roguish proud and skittish my name was roared to him in shaking his hand i bowed low of course a bow de coeur and he in the old aristocratic manner bowed equally low but with such swiftness that we narrowly escaped concussion you do not usually associate a man of genius when you see one with any social class and swinburne being of an aspect so unrelated as it was to any species of human kind i wondered the more that almost the first impression he made on me or would make on any one was that of a very great gentleman indeed not of an old gentleman either sparse and straggling though the grey hair was that fringed the immense pale dome of his head and venerably haloed though he was for me by his greatness there was yet about him something boyish girlish childish rather something of a beautifully well-bred child but he had the eyes of a god and the smile of an elf in figure at first glance he seemed almost fat but this was merely because of the way he carried himself with his long neck strained so tightly back that he all receded from the waist upwards 
I noticed afterwards that this deportment made the back of his jacket hang quite far away from his legs, and so small and sloping were his shoulders that the jacket seemed ever so likely to slip right off. I became aware, too, that when he bowed, he did not unbend his back, but only his neck, the length of the neck accounting for the depth of the bow. His hands were tiny, even for his size, and they fluttered helplessly, touchingly, unceasingly. Directly after my introduction, we sat down to the meal. Of course, I had never hoped to get into touch with him reciprocally. Quite apart from his deafness, I was too modest to suppose he could be interested in anything I might say. But, for I knew he had once been as high and copious a singer in talk as in verse, I had hoped to hear utterances from him, and it did not seem that my hope was to be fulfilled. Watts Dunton sat at the head of the table, with a huge and very tupperesque joint of roast mutton in front of him, Swinburne and myself close up to him on either side. He talked only to me. This was the more tantalizing because Swinburne seemed as though he were bubbling over with all sorts of notions, not that he looked at either of us. He smiled only to himself, and to his plateful of meat and to the small bottle of Bass's pale ale that stood before him, ultimate allowance of one who had erst clashed cymbals in Noxos. This small bottle he eyed often and with enthusiasm, seeming to waver between the rapture of broaching it now and the grandeur of having it to look forward to. It made me unhappy to see what trouble he had in managing his knife and fork, Watts Dunton told me on another occasion that this infirmity of the hands had been lifelong, had begun before Eton days. The Swinburne family had been alarmed by it, and had consulted a specialist, who said that it resulted from an excess of electric vitality, and that any attempt to stop it would be harmful. So they had let it be. I have known no man of genius who had not to pay in some affliction or defect, either physical or spiritual, for what the gods had given him. Here, in this fluttering of his tiny hands, was a part of the price that Swinburne had to pay. No doubt he had grown accustomed to it many lustres before I met him, and I need not have felt at all unhappy at what I tried not to see. He, evidently, was quite gay in his silence, and in the world that was for him silent. I had, however, the maddening suspicion that he would have liked to talk. Why wouldn't Watts Dunton roar him an opportunity? I felt I had been right, perhaps, in feeling that the lesser man was, no, not jealous of the greater, whom he had guarded so long and with such love, but anxious that he himself should be as fully impressive to visitors as his fine gifts warranted. Not, indeed, that he monopolized the talk. He seemed to regard me as a source of information about all the latest movements, and I had to shout banalities while he munched his mutton. Banalities, whose one saving grace for me was that they were inaudible to Swinburne. Had I met Swinburne's gaze, I should have faltered. 
now and again his shining light gray eyes roved from the table darting this way and that across the room up at the ceiling out of the window only never at us somehow this aloofness gave no hint of indifference it seemed to be rather a point in good manners the good manners of a child sitting up to table not staring not asking questions and reflecting great credit on its invaluable old nurse the child sat happy in the wealth of its inner life the child was content not to speak until it were spoken to but but i felt it did want to be spoken to and at length it was so soon as the mutton had been replaced by the apple pie watts dunton leaned forward and well algernon he roared how was it on the heath to-day swinburne who had meekly inclined his ear to the question now threw back his head uttering a sound that was like the cooing of a dove and forthwith rapidly ever so musically he spoke to us of his walk spoke not in the strain of a man who had been taking his daily exercise on putney heath but rather in that of a peri who had at long last been suffered to pass through paradise and rather than that he spoke would i say that he cooingly and flutingly sang of his experience the wonders of this morning's wind and sun and clouds were expressed in a flow of words so right and sentences so perfectly balanced that they would have seemed pedantic had they not been clearly as spontaneous as the wordless notes of a bird in song the frail sweet voice rose and fell lingered quickened in all manner of trills and roulades that he himself could not hear it seemed to me the greatest loss his deafness inflicted on him one would have expected this disability to mar the music but it didn't save that now and again a note would come out metallic and overshrill the tones were under good control the whole manner and method had certainly a strong element of oddness but no one incapable of condemning as unmanly the song of a lark would have called it affected i had met young men of whose enunciation swinburne's now reminded me in them the thing had always irritated me very much and i now became sure that it had been derived from people who had derived it in old balliol days from swinburne himself one of the points familiar to me in such enunciation was the habit of stressing extremely and lackadaisically dwelling on some particular syllable in swinburne this trick was delightful because it wasn't a trick but a need of his heart well do i remember his ecstasy of emphasis and immensity of pause when he described how he had seen in a perambulator on the heath to-day the most beautiful babby ever beheld by mortal eyes for babies as some of his later volumes testify he had a sort of idolatry after mazzini had followed landor to elysium and victor hugo had followed mazzini babies were what among live creatures most evoked swinburne's genius for self-abasement 
His rapture about this especial babby was such as to shake within me my hitherto firm conviction that whereas the young of the brute creation are already beautiful at the age of five minutes, the human young never begin to be so before the age of three years. I suspect Watts Dunton of having shared my lack of innate enthusiasm, but it was one of Swinburne's charms, as I was to find, that he took for granted every one's delight in what he himself so fervidly delighted in. He could as soon have imagined a man not loving the very sea as not doting on the aspect of babies, and not reading at least one play by an Elizabethan or Jacobian dramatist every day. I forget whether it was at this my first meal, or at another, that he described a storm in which, one night years ago, with Watts Dunton, he had crossed the channel. The rhythm of his great phrases was as the rhythm of those waves, and his head swayed in accordance to it like the wave-rocked boat itself. He hymned in memory the surge and darkness, the thunder and foam and phosphorescence. You remember, Theodore? You remember the phosphorescence? All so beautifully and vividly that I almost felt storm-bound and in peril of my life. To disentangle one from another of the several occasions on which I heard him talk is difficult, because the procedure was so invariable. Watts Dunton always dictating when I arrived, Swinburne always appearing at the moment of the meal, always the same simple and substantial fare, Swinburne never allowed to talk before the meal was half over. As to this last point, I soon realized that I had been quite unjust in suspecting Watts Dunton of selfishness. It was simply a sign of the care with which he watched over his friend's welfare. Had Swinburne been admitted earlier to the talk, he would not have taken his proper quantity of roast mutton. So soon, always, as he had taken that, the embargo was removed, the chance was given him, and swiftly though he embraced the chance, and much though he made of it in the course of apple pie and of cheese, he seemed touchingly ashamed of holding forth. Often, before he had said his really full say on the theme suggested by Watts Dunton's loud interrogation, he would curb his speech and try to eliminate himself, bowing his head over his plate and then when he had promptly been brought in again he would always try to atone for his inhibiting deafness by much reference and deference to all that we might otherwise have to say i hope he would coo to me my friend watts dunton who and here he would turn and make a little bow to watts dunton is himself a scholar will bear me out when i say or i hardly know he would flute to his old friend whether mr beerbohm here a bow to me will agree with me in my opinion of some delicate point in greek prosody or some incident in an old french romance i had never heard of on one occasion, just before the removal of the mutton, Watts Dunton had been asking me about an English translation that had been made of M. Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac, 
He then took my information as the match to ignite the Swinburnian tinder. Well, Algernon, it seems that Cyrano de Bergerac... But this first spark was enough. Instantly, Swinburne was praising the works of Cyrano de Bergerac. Of Monsieur Rostand he may have heard, but him he forgot. Indeed, I never heard Swinburne mention a single contemporary writer. His mind ranged and reveled always in the illustrious or obscure past. To him, the writings of Cyrano de Bergerac were as fresh as paint. As fresh as to me, alas, was the news of their survival. Of course, of course. You have read L'Histoire Comique des Etats et des Empires de la Lune? I admitted, by gesture and facial expression, that I had not, whereupon he reeled out curious extracts from that allegory. Almost as good as Gulliver, with a memorable instance of the way in which that traveller to the moon was shocked by the conversation of the natives, and the native's sense of propriety was outraged by the conversation of the traveller, in life as in that for him more truly actual thing literature it was always the preterite that enthralled him of any passing events of anything the newspapers were full of never a word from him and i should have been sorry if there had been but i did through the medium of watts dunton sometimes start him on topics that might have led him to talk of rossetti and other old comrades for me the names of those men breathed the magic of the past just as it was breathed for me by swinburne's presence for him i suppose they were but a bit of the present and the mere fact that they had dropped out of it was not enough to hallow them he never mentioned them but i was glad to see that he revelled as wistfully in the days just before his own as i in the days just before mine he recounted to us things he had been told in his boyhood by an aged aunt or great-aunt one of the ashburnhams how for example she had been taken by her mother to a county ball a distance of many miles and on the way home through the frosty and snowy night the family coach had suddenly stopped there was a crowd of dark figures in the way at which point swinburne stopped too before saying with an ineffable smile and in a voice faint with appreciation they were burying a suicide at the crossroads vivid as this hogarthian night scene was to me i saw beside it another scene a great panelled room a grim old woman in a high-backed chair and restless on a stool at her feet an extraordinary little nephew with masses of auburn hair and with tiny hands clasped in supplication tell me more aunt ashburnham tell me more and now clearlier still as i write in these after years do i see that dining-room of the pines the long white stretch of tablecloth with swinburne and watts dunton and another at the extreme end of it watts dunton between us very low down over his plate very cosy and hirsute and rather like the dormouse at that long tea-table which alice found in wonderland 
I see myself sitting there, wide-eyed, as Alice sat. And had the hare been a great poet, and the hatter a great gentleman, and neither of them mad, but each only very odd and vivacious, I might see Swinburne as a glorified blend of these two. Only once was the ritual varied. Swinburne, I was told before luncheon, had expressed a wish to show me his library, so after the meal he did not bid us his usual adieu, but with much courtesy invited us and led the way. Up the staircase he then literally bounded three, literally three stairs at a time. I began to follow at the same rate, but immediately slackened speed for fear that Watts Dunton behind us might be embittered at sight of so much youth and legerity. Swinburne waited on the threshold to receive us, as it were, and pass us in. Watts Dunton went and ensconced himself snugly in a corner. The sun had appeared after a grey morning, and it pleasantly flooded this big living room whose walls were entirely lined with the mellow backs of books. Here, as host among his treasures, Swinburne was more than ever attractive. He was as happy as any moat in the sunshine about him and the fluttering of his little hands, and feet too, was but as a token of so much felicity. He looked older, it is true, in the strong sunlight, but these added years made only more notable his youngness of heart. An illustrious bibliophile among his books, a birthday child, rather, among his toys. Proudly he explained to me the general system under which the volumes were ranged in this or that division of shelves. Then he conducted me to a chair near the window, left me there, flew away, flew up the rungs of a mahogany ladder, plucked a small volume, and in a twinkling was at my side. This, I think, will please you. It did. It had a beautifully engraved title-page, and a pleasing scent of old, old leather. It was an editio princeps of a play by some lesser Elizabethan or Jacobian. "'Of course you know it,' my host fluted. How I wished I could say that I knew it, and loved it well. I revealed to him, for by speaking very loudly towards his inclined head I was able to make him hear, that I had not read it.' He envied anyone who had such pleasure in store. He darted to the ladder and came back, thrusting gently into my hands another volume of like date. Of course you know this. Again, I had to confess that I did not, and to shout my appreciation of the fount of type, the margins, the binding. He beamed agreement and fetched another volume. Archly, he indicated the title, cooing, "'You are a lover of this, I hope.' "'And again I was shamed by my inexperience. "'I did not pretend to know this particular play, "'but my tone implied that I had always been meaning to read it "'and had always by some mischance been prevented. "'For his sake, as well as my own, "'I did want to acquit myself passably. "'I wanted for him the pleasure of seeing his joys shared by a representative,' however humble, of the common world. I turned the leaves caressingly, looking from them to him, while he dilated on the beauty of this and that scene in the play. Anon he fetched another volume and another, 
always with the same faith that this was a favorite of mine. I quibbled, I evaded, I was very enthusiastic and uncomfortable. It was with intense relief that I beheld the title page of yet another volume, which, silently this time, he laid before me. The Country Wench. This, of course, I have read, I heartily shouted. Swinburne stepped back. You have? You have read it? Where? he cried, in evident dismay. Something was wrong. Had I not, I quickly wondered, read this play? Oh, yes, I shouted. I have read it. But when, where? entreated Swinburne, adding that he had supposed it to be the sole copy extant. I floundered. I wildly said I thought I must have read it years ago in the Bodleian. Theodore, do you hear this? It seems that they have now a copy of The Country Wench in the Bodleian. Mr. Beerbohm found one there. Oh, when? In what year? He appealed to me. I said it might have been six, seven, eight years ago. Swinburne knew for certain that no copy had been there twelve years ago, and was surprised that he had not heard of the acquisition. They might have told me, he wailed. I sacrificed myself on the altar of sympathy. I admitted that I might have been mistaken, must have been, must have confused this play with some other. I dipped into the pages, and— No, I shouted, this I have never read. His equanimity was restored. He was up the ladder and down again, showing me further treasures with all pride and ardor. At length, Watts Dunton, afraid that his old friend would tire himself, arose from his corner, and presently he and I went downstairs to the dining-room. It was in the course of our session together there that there suddenly flashed across my mind the existence of a play called The Country Wife by, wasn't it Witcherly? I had once read it, or read something of it, but this matter I kept to myself. I thought I had appeared fool enough already. I loved those sessions in that tupper settine dining-room, lair of solid old comfort and fervid old romanticism. Its odd duality benefited well its owner. The distinguished critic and poet, Rossetti's closest friend and Swinburne's, had been for a while in the dark ages a solicitor, and one felt he had been a good one. His frock-coat, though the muses had crumpled it, inspired confidence in his judgment of other things than verses. But let there be no mistake. He was no mere bourgeois parnassien, as his enemies insinuated. No doubt he had been very useful to men of genius, in virtue of qualities they lacked. But the secret of his hold on them was in his own rich nature. He was not only a born man of letters— he was a deeply emotional human being, whose appeal was as much to the heart as to the head. The romantic Celtic mysticism of Aylwin, with its lack of fashionable Celtic nebulosity, lends itself, if you will, to laughter, though personally I saw nothing funny in it. It seemed to me, before I was in touch with the author, a work of genuine expression from within, and that it truly was I presently knew. The mysticism of Watts Dunton, 
who, once comfortably settled at the fireside, knew no reserve, was, in contrast with the frock-coat and the practical abilities, but it was essential, and they were of the surface. For humorous Rossetti, I dare say, the very contrast made Theodore's company the more precious. He himself had assuredly been, and the memory of him still was, the master fact in Watts Dunton's life. Algernon was as an adopted child, Gabriel as a long-lost only brother. As he was to the outer world of his own day, so too to posterity Rossetti, the man, is conjectural and mysterious. We know that he was in his prime the most inspiring and splendid of companions, but we know this only by faith. The evidence is as vague as it is emphatic. Of the style and substance of not a few great talkers in the past, we can piece together some more or less vivid and probably erroneous notion. But about Rossetti, nothing has been recorded in such a way as to make him even faintly emerge. I suppose he had in him what reviewers seem to find so often in books, a quality that defies analysis. Listening to Watts Dunton, I was always in hope that when next the long-lost turned up, for he was continually doing so, in the talk, I should see him, hear him, and share the rapture. But the revelation was not to be. You might think that to hear him called Gabriel would have given me a sense of propinquity, but I felt no nearer to him than you feel to the archangel who bears that name and no surname. It was always when Watts Dunton spoke carelessly, casually, of some to me illustrious figure in the past, that I had the sense of being wafted right into that past and plumped down in the very midst of it. When he spoke with reverence of this and that great man whom he had known, he did not thus waft and plump me, for I too revered those names but I had the magical transition whenever one of the immortals was mentioned in the tone of those who knew him before he had put on immortality. Browning, for example, was a name deeply honoured by me. Browning, yes, said Watts Dunton, in the course of an afternoon. Browning. And he took a sip of steaming whisky toddy that was a point in our day's ritual. I was a great diner out in the old times. I used to dine out every night in the week. Browning was a great diner out, too. We were always meeting. What a pity he went on writing all those plays. He hadn't any gift for drama, none. I never could understand why he took to playwriting. He wagged his head, gazing regretfully into the fire, and added, such a clever fellow, too. Whistler, though alive and about, was already looked to as a hierarch by the young. Not so had he been looked to by Rossetti. The thrill of the past was always strong in me when Watts Dunton mentioned, seldom without a guffaw did he mention, Jimmy Whistler. I think he put in the surname because that fellow had not behaved well to Swinburne. But he could not omit the nickname because it was impossible for him to feel the right measure of resentment against such a funny fellow. 
as heart full of old hates as of old loves was watts dunton and i take it as high testimony to the charm of whistler's quaintness that watts dunton did not hate him you may be aware that swinburne in eighty eight wrote for one of the monthly reviews a criticism of the ten o'clock lecture he paid courtly compliments to whistler as a painter but joined issue with his theories straightway there appeared in the world a little letter from whistler deriding one algernon swinburne outsider putney it was not in itself a very pretty or amusing letter and still less so did it seem in the light of the facts which watts dunton told me in some such words as these after he published that lecture of his jimmy whistler had me to dine with him at kettner's or somewhere he said now theodore i want you to do me a favour he wanted to get me to get swinburne to write an article about his lecture i said no jimmy whistler i can't ask algernon to do that he's got a great deal of work on hand just now a great deal of work and besides this sort of thing wouldn't be at all in his line but jimmy whistler went on appealing to me he said it would do him no end of good if swinburne wrote about him and well i half gave in i said perhaps i would mention the matter to algernon and next day i did i could see algernon didn't want to do it at all but well there he said he'd do it to please me and he did it and then jimmy whistler published that letter a very shabby trick very shabby indeed of course i do not vouch for the exact words in which watts dunton told me this tale but this was exactly the tale he told me i expressed my astonishment he added that of course he never wanted to see the fellow again after that and never did but presently after a long gaze into the coals he emitted a chuckle as for earlier memories of such a funny fellow one quite recent memory he had too when i took on the name of dunton i had a note from him just this with his butterfly signature theodore what's dunton that was very good very good but of course he added gravely i took no notice and no doubt quite apart from the difficulty of finding an answer in the same vein he did very well in not replying loyalty to swinburne forbade but i see a certain pathos in the unanswered message it was a message from the hand of an old jester but also i think from the heart of an old man a signal waved jauntily but in truth wistfully across the gulf of years and estrangement and one could wish it had not been ignored some time after whistler died i wrote for one of the magazines an appreciation of his curious skill in the art of writing watts dunton told me he had heard of this from swinburne i myself he said very seldom read the magazines but algernon always has a look at them 
there was something to me very droll and cheery too in this picture of the illustrious recluse snatching at the current issues of our twaddle and i was immensely pleased at hearing that my article had interested him very much i inwardly promised myself that as soon as i reached home i would read the article to see just how it might have struck swinburne when in due course i did this i regretted the tone of the opening sentences in which i declared myself no book-lover and avowed a preference for an uninterrupted view of my fellow-creatures i felt that had i known my article would meet the eye of swinburne i should have cut out that overture i dimly remembered a fine passage in one of his books of criticism something i preferred not to verify it about the dotage of dunstam which cannot perceive or the impudence of insignificance so presumptuous as to doubt that the elements of life and literature are indivisibly mingled one into another and that he to whom books are less real than life will assuredly find in men and women as little reality as in his accursed crassness he deserves to discover i quailed i quailed but mine is a resilient nature and i promptly reminded myself that swinburne's was a very impersonal one he would not think the less highly of me for he had never thought about me in any way whatsoever all was well i knew i could revisit the pines when next watts dunton should invite me without misgiving and to this day i am rather proud of having been mentioned though not by name and not consciously and unfavourably by swinburne i wonder that i cannot recall more than i do recall of those hours at the pines it is odd how little remains to a man of his own past how few minutes of even his memorable hours are not clean forgotten and how few seconds in any one of those minutes can be recaptured i am middle-aged and have lived a vast number of seconds subtract one-third from those for one mustn't count sleep as life the residual number is still enormous not a single one of those seconds was unimportant to me in its passage many of them bored me of course but even boredom is a positive state one chafes at it and hates it strange that one should afterwards forget it and stranger still that of one's actual happiness and unhappiness so tiny and tattered a remnant clings about one of those hours at the pines of that past within a past there was not a minute nor a second that i did not spend with pleasure memory is a great artist we are told she selects and rejects and shapes and so on no doubt elderly persons would be utterly intolerable if they remembered everything everything nevertheless is just what they themselves would like to remember and just what they would like to tell to everybody be sure that the ancient mariner though he remembered quite as much as his audience wanted to hear and rather more about the albatross and the ghastly crew was inwardly raging at the sketchiness of his own mind and believe me that his stopping only one of three was the merest oversight 
I should like to impose on the world many tomes about the pines. But scant though my memories are of the moments there, very full and warm in me is the whole fused memory of the two dear old men that lived there. I wish I had Watts Dunton's sure faith in meetings beyond the grave. I am glad I do not disbelieve that people may so meet. I like to think that some day in Elysium I shall, not without diffidence, approach those two and reintroduce myself. I can see just how courteously Swinburne will bow over my hand, not at all remembering who I am. Watts Dunton will remember me after a moment. Oh, to be sure, yes. I've a great deal of work on hand just now, a great deal of work, but... We shall sit down together on the asphodel, and I cannot but think we shall have whisky toddy even there. He will not have changed. He will still be shaggy and old and chubby, and will wear the same frock coat with the same creases in it. Swinburne, on the other hand, will be quite, quite young, with a full mane of flaming auburn locks, and no clothes to hinder him from plunging back at any moment into the shining Elysian waters from which he will have just emerged. I see him skim lightly away into that element. On the strand is sitting a man of noble and furrowed brow. It is Mazzini, still thinking of liberty, and anon the tiny young English amphibian comes ashore to fling himself dripping at the feet of the patriot and to carol the republican ode he has composed in the course of his swim. He's wonderfully active, active in mind and body, Watts Dunton says to me. I come to the shore now and then just to see how he's getting on. But I spend most of my time inland. I find I've so much to talk over with Gabriel. Not that he's quite the fellow he was. He always had rather a cult for Dante, you know. And now he's more than ever under the Florentine influence. He lives in a sort of monastery that Dante has here, and there he sits, painting imaginary portraits of Beatrice, and giving them all to Dante. But he still has his great moments and there's no one quite like him, no one. Algernon won't even come and see him, because that fellow Mazzini's as anti-clerical as ever, and makes a principle of having nothing to do with Dante. Look, there's Algernon going into the water again. He'll tire himself out, he'll catch cold, he'll... And here the old man rises and hurries down to the sea's edge, now, Algernon, he roars, I don't want to interfere with you, but I do think, my dear old friend. And then, with a guffaw, he breaks off, remembering that his friend is not deaf now, nor old, and that here, in Elysium, where no ills are, good advice is not needed. End of section 5